Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of traditional body art. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today our topic is Irezumi, or Japanese tattoos. And this topic was actually requested by Melissa, our fan in Italy. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, thanks for the great idea. Yeah, this was a really fun one to research. I really dug in deep on this one. Yeah, I knew a bit about Japanese tattoos, but I know a bit more now. Yeah. Tattoos in Japan have a long and checkered history, don't they, Paul? Checkered history. That, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I can't take credit for those words. I saw those in an article somewhere, but I thought it fit really well. <laughs> so the literal translation of Irezumi is inserting ink. And you'll, you'll see when we start talking about it, that is very accurate. Yeah, I mean, that's how you do tattoos. Yep. But even, I mean, this specific traditional method they used is like you're really just inserting it in there. Like you're not using a machine and stuff that's just kind of skimming over the top. But we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But traditional Irezumi has a very distinctive style, right? Like you can tell at a glance, this is a Japanese tattoo. Yeah, definitely. Specific motifs that they use, a very specific style. There's a certain way that they're put together. It's pretty consistent. And I want to be clear that in this episode, we're mostly going to be talking about that traditional Irezumi. You know, people are getting more modern tattoos in Japan these days, but there's a traditional style that we're going to be focusing on. Yeah, the traditional style applied the traditional way by hand. I mean, with a needle in your hand yep. rather than a machine. Yep. There are connotations of criminality associated pretty strongly with tattoos in modern Japan. Very strongly. Even though there's a long history of tattoos in Japan as well. Yeah, I mean, they go way back, but that, yeah, that tie-in with criminals has kind of been there since pretty much the beginning, almost. So I guess we should probably start at the beginning, get into the history, right? Yeah, history time. All right, history. So in Japan, people have been getting tattoos for spiritual or decorative purposes for over 7,000 years, they're pretty sure. Yeah, possibly even longer. Yeah. So they found these little figures from around 5000 BCE in the Paleolithic period. So long ago. And these figures had patterns on their faces and bodies that some scholars believe are tattoos. Some scholars think it was actually scarification. And they're like carving up the skin and just allowing scars to form in different patterns. In the Yayoi period which was around 300 BCE to 300 CE, Japan still didn't have a written language, so we don't have specific records from Japan in that period. But China did have a written language, and when they visited Japan, they commented on tattoos in their texts. There's actually a book from the 3rd century where they said, and I quote, Men young and old all tattoo their faces and decorate their bodies with designs. End quote. Yeah, I saw that too. And it's interesting because once they started writing in Japan, they kind of had a different story. Yeah, they really did. According to the Kojiki, which is from the 8th century, no tattooing traditions existed in Japan except those associated with outsiders, right. which would be perhaps the Ainu people they were talking about. Perhaps. And then in the Nihon Shoki, which we've talked about plenty of times here, yep. another ancient book, they chronicle that tattooing traditions were confined only to the Ainu people. Mm -hmm. They were very specific in that one. Yeah. It makes you wonder, like, what, what's up with this shift, you know? And I wonder if it might have had something to do with the period right in between those, the Kofun period from about 300 to 600 CE, Apparently, that's around the time when tattoos started to have negative associations. And in that period, they started tattooing criminals as punishment. So maybe, you know, these stories that came after that just kind of wanted to distance their society from that whole idea of tattoos for adornment. Yeah, that was also the time around 300 BC where Japan first became like a large empire. Mm, you like know, it was consolidated wasn't... society. Yeah, at least for the Yayoi people on the on Honshu. 
they might have separated themselves kind of from the Ainu and the Ryukuans and the others. Like, they're the barbarians. We're the civilized people. We don't do that type of thing. Yeah. Total speculation, but maybe. Maybe. So I want to talk for a minute about the Ainu. Yeah. Because they have a long tattoo history that actually ended very recently. The last fully tattooed Ainu woman died in 1998. So it wasn't until last century they were still doing it. Yeah, and they had really interesting tattoos. Yeah. From what I can tell in my research, only women were tattooed in the Ainu culture. I saw some sources suggesting that men did, but then I saw a whole bunch of stuff saying only women did. I don't really know. But it was definitely seemed to be more prominent among women. Yeah, I, that's definitely the impression I got, is that it was more focused on women and their face tattoos that were supposed to have some sort of spiritual significance, and it kind of marked that they were ready for marriage, right? Yep. According to mythological accounts, tattoos were brought to Earth by the ancestral mother of the Ainu, Okikurumi Turesh Machi who was the younger sister of the creator god. So that's where they came from, I guess. <laughs> Everything cool. was brought from the gods, right? Yeah. So these tattoos are pretty important to them. Yeah, the position of tattoo artist was performed by women as well, often women in your family. So your grandmother or your aunt or someone like that would tattoo you. Yeah. As you said, the face tattoos were really common. Yeah. Right around the mouth, almost looking like a big smile. Right. It's, I mean, you got to look up pictures if, if that interests you at all, because they are really interesting looking. I don't want to be culturally insensitive, but what they remind me of is like the Joker, you know, the villain, the Joker. He's got like this big painted on smile. Yeah. It's kind of that sort yeah. of shape. It looks like that, except they were mostly black. Right, right. Or really dark blue. I'm not sure. Yeah. They were dark. Um, but I saw they also had like weave patterns they'd done their arms sometimes too. Mm-hmm. But the face tattoo was definitely like the prevalent one. Mm-hmm. That was something I looked into a while back. I knew tattoos because I watched an anime about I knew people hmm. and they were talking about tattoos. Cool. And I got like deep into it, but it's just so many conflicting sources. And yeah. We're going to run into that a lot this episode, I think. Right. But, you know, it did seem like there was a lot of documentation about mainland Japanese Irizumi. But yeah, with the Ainu stuff, it seemed like it was really hard to find solid information. Yeah, especially in English. Yeah. Who knows what's out there in Japanese. Right. So I knew about Ainu, but I didn't know about the Ryukuan traditional tattooing. Mm-hmm. So again, that seems to be a mostly female thing. Yeah, isn't that interesting? At both ends of Japan, basically, out, uh, like on the edges of Japan, it was all women tattoos. Yeah, women in the Ryukyu Islands would get uh, tattoos on the back of their hands. And the tattoos functioned as symbols of their transition from adolescence to womanhood, um, and also indicators of social status. That's also very similar to the Ainu, except they yeah. didn't do it on their faces. Yeah, it makes you wonder if there was some sort of contact between them like way back, you know? I think there was, because the Ainu used to be all over mainland Japan and got kind of pushed north only later yeah. by the Yayoi people arriving. Yeah, they, maybe they were kind of, the, uh, the Yayoi people were kind of a wedge that drove in between them and split up those two groups. Yeah, yeah, but they used to be closer. Yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, they tattooed arrowheads, circles, everything had lots of meaning for them. An arrowhead for a daughter that was getting married off and would never come back to the family Hmm. because arrowheads never come back once you shoot them. Logical. The higher classes were known to be really into their tattoos. I saw one source that said higher class women were cared more about their tattoos than they did about their wealth or their husband. It was such a status symbol Wow! to have the tattoos. We're still talking the Ryukyu Islands? Yep. Yep. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. It was, uh, they have a deep history of that I, that I completely didn't know about. Yeah, me Mostly either. seemingly hands, a lot of hand tattoos. Yeah, right. Cool. So back to mainland Japan. Yeah. So there, 
Up until the Edo period, it sounds like tattoos were still mostly used for punishments, but some people were starting to get decorative tattoos, and I saw some, there were some fads that came and went, especially for couples. Like, uh, people might get tattoos as couples. I think that's still a thing in the U.S. (laughs) certainly is. Um, Some people regret that later. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I thought of that too. I, I also saw, like, a long time ago, even then they would get their partner's name tattooed on them sometimes and stuff. Oh, really? And I'm like, oh, that's a bad idea. You don't want to do that. It's like that guy I used to work with that had seven women's name on his neck. Oh, no. Six of them were crossed out. Every time he got a new girl, she's like, you got to get rid of that name and put mine on there. You can't put those other six women's name on there and not have my name on there. He was running out of room. Yeah. I mean, if I saw a list of guys' names on a girl, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should just stay away. Maybe I don't want to even be a part of that list. Yeah, and they're all crossed out. Like, yeah. I don't want to be another X on your list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I saw that they would have couples tattoos where like the design is only complete when you're holding hands. Like each of you has a half of the tattoo, kind of. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So speaking of those criminal tattoos, like what's a criminal tattoo? Like how do you tattoo a criminal? I found a website that talked about a lot of different types of tattoos criminals would get depending on where they were in the country and what kind of crime they had committed. So sometimes people would get things tattooed on their foreheads. Yeah, I saw face was common because that's like the thing you can't cover up. Exactly. Yeah, everybody knows looking at you, this guy did something. Or sometimes the forearm was a popular place too. And, you know, they did it. In different ways, in different parts of the country, it seems like. But, Mm. you know, if you were familiar with kind of that language of tattoos, you would be able to tell at a glance, like, what this person did and where. Yeah. I saw you got kicked out or banished a lot, too. Like, they Mm. tattoo you and, like, banish you from the area. Hmm. So you go live in shame somewhere else. Wow. And maybe that's partly why they had different styles everywhere. So you could say, like, oh, that's one of our styles, and you're back here. Oh, yeah. So now now we're going to throw you in jail or kill you or whatever the next step is. Yeah, you can keep tabs on those banished people. Although, in a way, it was, like, a really progressive way of punishing people because before that, they might have chopped a hand off or removed a limb or something as punishment for stealing. Yeah. So actually tattooing and banishing someone is probably less harsh in a way. Sure. You could say that. So there's some interesting history there, I think. Yeah. It is really interesting. We talk about the Edo period now? Yeah. Like a lot of things, this is where it really developed closer to its modern form. Definitely. So that period was between around 1600 to 1868. And yes, so many things changed in the world of tattoos. So Irizumi, traditional tattoos, were very heavily influenced by something called ukiyo-e, which were these woodblock prints. And this form of art flourished in the Edo period. And if you look it up, look up these ukiyo-e prints, you'll see tons of similarities in the style between those and the tattoos. I actually saw that it was even the same people that made those woodblock prints that started playing around with tattooing. So, you know, the art form just carried over from the prints to people's skin. Another thing that happened was that the Yakuza, organized crime, the Japanese mafia, you could call them, started to develop. And remember, these criminals, a lot of criminals had been tattooed and they would be imprisoned together. So they started forming prison gangs, basically. And sometimes when they got out of prison, they would get big, elaborate tattoos to cover up their punishment tattoos, their prison tattoos. So they're kind of turning their tattoos into a badge of honor. Like they're you know, taking that and making it their own. Yeah, making it a work of art rather yeah. than a negative thing. Right. And I saw that the Yakuza saw these tattoos as proof of courage because... Of course, it was painful to get a really big tattoo like that. And proof of loyalty, because they're permanent. I mean, now there are ways to kind of get rid of tattoos. But back then, once you're tattooed, you're you're in it for life. So it shows your allegiance and dedication to the group. Yeah, you get a bunch of Yakuza tattoos. Like, back in the day, you couldn't just run away from that. Yeah. You were tatted for life. Yep. So... The original inspiration for tattoos getting really popular from the woodblock paintings 
seems to have come from a book called the Sui Koden, which was actually written in China a while before it came to Japan. But it came to Japan around 1757, and sometime later, artists created woodblock paintings based on the characters. It's a tale of rebel courage, manly bravery. So, you know, it really gets the guys going. So the artist created these heroic scenes of men with their bodies decorated with dragons and mythical beasts and flowers and religious images. And people just thought they were so cool. They were like, I want to look like that. Mm -hmm. Put those tats on me, man. Yeah. And getting tattoos at the time was also a little bit of a political statement. Because these heroes in this book were actually like rebels fighting against a corrupt government, which kind of struck a chord with a lot of people in Japan. Still does, man. Still does. <laughs> yeah. So remember the Tokugawa shogunate, our old friends that we've talked about so, so many times. They were a military dictatorship, you know, authoritarian. And there were a lot of people that saw them as corrupt and didn't like that strict social hierarchy that was imposed upon them. And they wanted to rebel against that. So the tattoos were kind of a way to do that. And so throughout the Edo period, the ruling class, these samurai, were kind of threatened by this. Or at the very least, they didn't like that. That, that idea was spreading around. So they tried to ban tattoos like a bunch of times, apparently, in different parts of the country. But it never really seemed to work because people were getting tattoos in places where they couldn't be seen. How do you enforce that, you know? Yeah, and it's hard to enforce, too, because it's hard to prove when someone got a tattoo. So a lot of these tattoo bans, they'd be like, all right, starting today, anyone born after today can't get a tattoo. Well, it's going to be like 18, 20 years or whatever till those people would have even gotten tattoos. So it's hard to enforce, or at least you got to wait a long time to enforce it. Yeah. And maybe people cared less by then. Who knows, you know? Mm -hmm. That's a long time for a continuous policy. Yeah. So I read that there's been some debate over who was mostly getting tattoos in this period. Was it the lower classes, like the blue-collar workers, which would have been the group where the Yakuza were coming from? Or was it more the wealthy merchants? Because I thought this was really interesting. Apparently, it was illegal for wealthy merchants to flaunt their wealth by wearing fancy clothes, fancy kimono, just showing off like that. So they might have gotten really expensive tattoos that they could cover up with their clothes so they could just show those off in private to the people that they wanted to impress. Yeah, or even just feel cool about themselves walking around town. Like you don't even know yeah. how badass I look under this kimono. Yeah, man. it gives you a little confidence, a little pep, or what was the something in your step? What's the phrase I'm going for there? Yeah, a little pep in your step. Is that it? I think okay. so. Pep in your step, yeah. I also saw that uh, these merchants would often have really expensive linings on the inside of their kimono for the same reason. <laughs> yeah, okay. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's interesting. The samurai were a sensitive bunch, but the power really was turning towards the merchants. Yeah, and the samurai didn't like that at all. It was a time of peace, so it, was, uh, it became all about the economy and less about the warriors. Yeah. And uh, the merchants grew and grew in power. Yeah. So it seems likely that pretty much, uh, I mean, all the social classes besides the samurai and the ruling class were probably getting tattoos to some extent. Yeah. The traditionalist samurai were like, no. And everyone else was like, yeah. Yeah. The samurai actually had rules about like kind of religious ideas about how to treat your body. Your, your body's a temple. You don't you know, stick needles in it and stuff, basically. The samurai had rules about a lot of things, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so another thing, another group of people that became associated with tattoos were called Toby or steeplejacks. And when I saw that, Toby or steeplejacks, okay, steeplejacks, that doesn't help me at all. What is a steeplejack? Have you heard that word before? I've heard those two words before, but never together. <laughs> yeah. So apparently steeplejacks are climbers, like they would be the kind of people to climb steeples or other tall structures to repair them or clean them or whatever. Okay. Before they had, that's you know. A, that's a badass job. Yeah, right? Like a chimney sweep kind of person almost, I guess. I think but, of like those guys in 
1920s New York running around on top of skyscrapers. Yeah. Yeah. Those scary pictures. Yeah. Like sitting there. They're just chilling up there like it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So these guys are pretty cool. And they're mostly young men who are, of course, very agile climbers. And they, they did a lot of stuff. They had a lot of different jobs. They would climb tall structures for construction and repairs. They also served as firefighters. They helped prepare for festivals and other public events. So they were like really important and valued members of the community. And since they needed to be able to move really freely to do all this stuff, they would often be wearing a lot less clothes. Like maybe they would take off their their shirt or sometimes even they would be stripped down to a loincloth. Yeah, that'd be easy to climb in. Yeah, so if they had tats, they're going to show. But no one's going to complain that you got a tattoo when you're putting their burning house off, you know, if they're pouring water on it. Exactly. So these guys had a lot of tattoos that they wore for spiritual protection. Ah. And apparently, like, they were so popular that community leaders would pay for these guys to get more tattoos as a matter of civic pride. Like, they're donating to the community by helping these guys out, basically. Nice. Isn't that interesting? I lived in Edo, Japan. I might be a steeplejack <laughs> until I got old. Yeah. I'd probably be retiring right now. Yeah. Well, you would be popular. People would love you. And I read that this might actually be one of the reasons that tattoos started to be associated with bravery and a roguish sex appeal. Mm-hmm. You know, these were cool, young, handsome guys, really strong and impressive. And, you know, that, that kind of image kind of started to relate to tattoos as well. Yeah, people dig tattoos. I don't care what people say. I think like most people are into tattoos on other people. I don't know. I don't know if most people are into tattoos, but... I think secretly, yeah. There are certain people that think tattoos are really cool. (laughs) (laughs) You imagine putting out fires in like the Edo period? No. Like a roof's on fire. You got to climb up this whole building carrying a bucket of water to dump a bucket of water on it and then you gotta climb back down go refill your bucket i actually read this a lot of the time it sounds like they would go up to the part that was burning and they would just destroy it yeah they just smash it so that it couldn't spread to the rest of the building yeah i heard in some i think it was like ancient rome they would just let the building burn they would demolish all the buildings around it so that the fire couldn't spread Mm. and that's how they like put out fires yeah when when you didn't have hoses and water pressure yeah. So then we get to the Meiji period. And what did they do to tattoos? Well, they outlawed them in 1872. Because this is around the period when Japan opened its borders to the rest of the world. And they wanted to make a really good impression. You know, they didn't want the rest of the world looking at what they were doing and thinking, oh, these guys are backwards and primitive and barbaric or whatever. Yeah. So they're like, we're getting rid of tattoos. Which is ironic because a bunch of foreigner people ended up coming to Japan to get tattoos. (laughs) Yeah, it is ironic. (laughs) But, I mean, either way, from that point on in Japan, the only people getting tattoos were criminals and, you know, the Yakuza, the organized crime. Well, if you got a tattoo, you would become a criminal. Yeah, you're a criminal specifically because you have a tattoo. That makes you a criminal. Yeah, So this really solidified those negative connotations and a stigma attached to tattoos in Japan, which, you know, lasts even to today. As we talked about in the onsen episode, a lot of onsen won't allow you in if you have tattoos because of this association. Yeah, I knew that. We've talked about that before, but apparently some other places too, like fitness centers and stuff, frowned upon to have tattoos. Mm -hmm. But like you said, Paul, A lot of foreigners still went to Japan specifically to get tattoos because they just thought they were so cool, which, of course, also people are still doing today. They are cool, though. I mean... They are. It's just such a distinct style, and it looks really nice. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, Japan always takes ideas and just develops them and focuses them and brings them to, like, the highest level they can, you know? Yeah, and I'm no tattoo historian, but right now there's great tattoos all over the world. But if you look at tattoos from America from like 50 to 100 years ago, most of them don't look that great. Like if you compared a 100-year-old tattoo in America to like what they were doing in Japan in the Edo period, the Japanese stuff blows it away in my opinion. Yeah. 
although I'd say the rest of the world's caught up more today. Yeah. I don't know. There's something about that. Well, we'll get into the style, but yeah. I don't know. I really like those like huge Yakuza tattoos. They just look so cool. <laughs> Full body suit, bro. You got to do it. Yeah. Kind of want to. I kind of want to. Um, but I had a little bit of specifics about Westerners getting tattoos. This is crazy. Get this, Paul. King Edward VII from the UK. Okay. He had a Japanese tattoo artist put dragons on his forearms, and then he sent that artist to New England for his friends to get tattoos from the same guy. And in Victorian England, huge tattoos actually became really popular. I didn't know that. More than anywhere else in Europe, because guys in the Navy would come home with tattoos that they got on their travels. And this just blew me away. I mean, you think Victorian era, you think like really fancy uh, suits and huge dresses and stuff. Everybody's wearing hats. Everybody looks very high class. Very prudish and conservative yeah. is like my idea. Right. But a lot of these people had like huge tattoos under, the, under those clothes. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? I could see the sailors doing it, but it's interesting that it went to the high classes as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. That's the weird thing is apparently a lot of European monarchs, even as far east as like Russia, got these big tattoos and went specifically to Japan to get them done. That's cool. Yeah. So tattooing was legalized again in Japan mm -hmm. in 1948 by the occupation government. Yep, the American occupation. But of course, it still retained its association with criminals and the Yakuza because they were the main groups of people getting tattoos during that prohibition. And yeah. I actually saw that the fact that it was Americans that lifted the ban on tattoos may have also had a negative effect on the public perception of tattoos. Yeah, I thought about that. When the perception's so skewed, like, this is a criminal, and then, like, the Americans are just like, oh, you can do this now. Like, that's how I could convince the people. Yeah. That that's like, a oh, good the Americans said it's cool. Let's all go get tattoos. <laughs> right, right. It took a long time, and it hasn't definitely completely changed, but younger people in Japan definitely are less stigmatized about tattoos these days. The older generation, though, is still very much against tattoos for the most part. Yeah, probably the people where for most of their lives, that Yakuza tattoo connection was really strong. And I actually saw that after the ban was lifted, there seems to have been a bit of a feedback loop with that connection, too, with the Yakuza, because... The Yakuza would see themselves portrayed in film and other media with these giant tattoos. So they would see that and think, oh, that's what we're supposed to be like. Let me go get a giant, awesome tattoo. So this actually boosted their popularity with the Yakuza, and they, they became even bigger than ever before. Yeah, you see the movie star acting like a Yakuza, decked out in tattoos. They're making them look really cool and badass. You're like, yeah, I want to be like that too. That's me, man. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I did see that today the Yakuza are starting to shy away from tattoos a little bit more. Yes. Partly because they're so associated with criminality and Yakuza. It's kind of like, well, maybe I can fly under the radar if I don't get all the tattoos. Mm-hmm. People won't expect me to be Yakuza. Mm -hmm. So it's all like turning back on its head now. Right. And as the popularity within the Yakuza falls, seems to be gaining a little popularity with the general public. It's still not super widespread, but I saw it. there were tattooists that were interviewed and they confirmed that the tattoos are less popular with the Yakuza now, but they have a much more diverse clientele. But these new people that are coming to get tattoos are likely to be interested in much smaller, more Western style tattoos than like the full body tattoos that the Yakuza had. Which is understandable. Yeah. I mean, that's a big commitment to get such a huge tattoo, not to mention expensive. And yeah. We'll I mean, it's that. like a lifestyle almost yeah. to like get a tattoo, get tattoos that big. Right. It's definitely seems to be a bit of a class thing too. Like people with good education and nice jobs are much less likely to get a tattoo. It's like the delinquent group. Like if you didn't go to high school, you're probably much more likely to have a tattoo because of the type of jobs you work. It's more acceptable and because more of your friends are going to have them. Mm. So it's divided a little bit in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So tattoos are gaining a little popularity, but they're still much less popular than they are in the West. 
In 2014, members of the Kanto Federation of Bar Associations surveyed 1,000 random people between ages 20 to 60 in Japan, and only 16 of them had tattoos. That's 1.6%. That's yeah, like, okay. I mean, I know, you know, obviously they're not popular, but th- I was a little surprised at just how low that number was. That's pretty low. I don't know what the numbers are anywhere else, though. In Western nations, the number ranges between 10 to 25%, apparently. Okay. I mean, we both have tattoos, for the record. You're going to just out me like that, Paul? <laughs> They're on your wrist. Everyone can see them. Not our listeners, but okay. I guess they know now. <laughs> Jason's got some really tasteful, cool, professional tattoos, guys. Thank you. Paul's got some totally delinquent, like totally criminal-looking tattoos. Got a little teardrop by his eye and everything. I'm just kidding. All my friends and family won't let me get the craziest tattoos that I want to get. Oh, man. <laughs> Jason's always telling me, don't do that, you, you crazy person. Yeah. Someday, maybe. I was actually going to get a tattoo like a few months ago. Like I'd finally saved up some money. I was like getting ready to do it. And then COVID happened and like all the tattoo parlors closed. Yeah, I bet. Some of them are open back up now. I just haven't got around to like going in and doing it. Hmm. Is that the end of the history section? It is. All right. So we've talked about how cool these tattoos look. So it's time to talk about more specifically what they look like. Yeah. What's the style of Japanese tattoos? Yeah. Well, so there are a lot of common motifs that you'll see, and they all have their own special symbolism. And I found so many websites with like huge lists of all these different things and what they mean. It's just too much to go through all of it in this episode. Yeah, I narrowed it to like 10 or 11 of like the really common ones. Yeah. So we'll go through this list, but some of these we've actually talked specifically about in past episodes and we talked about the symbolism there. So keep an ear out for those and you can go back if you want to hear more about that. Yeah. Specific thing. The longer we do this podcast, it all keeps coming around back on itself. Yeah, it's really amazing how much they overlap sometimes when you really don't expect it. Uh, okay, so one group of motifs that you'd be likely to see are mythological beasts. Yeah, dragons, of course. Ho'oh, a bird that you might recognize from Pokemon. That's actually a, you know, a bird from Japanese mythology. I didn't realize that when I first saw it in Pokemon. Kirin, like the beer, is also a mythological beast. Sort of a mix between a dragon and a deer, I guess. I didn't know that. Like the Kirin beer has like its logo as like some sort of beast. I never knew that was actually a Kirin. Me either. And it's a really weird... It's a weird one. Yeah. yeah. I was reading the description and I was like, huh? Like, what is that? It seems like Japan has a lot of mythological beasts that are just combinations of all these other real animals. Yeah. So if you get a dragon tattoo, it symbolizes wisdom, strength, a force for good. So kind of a powerful, cool thing to get there. Mm -hmm. Another group of images you might see are animals, like real animals. Birds, koi. We just recently did an episode about koi. Tigers. Snakes. Yeah. Also flowers. We did an episode about cherry blossoms. Those are very significant in Japanese culture. Lotuses, which are uh, important in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Chrysanthemums, which I believe symbolize perfection because they're just so symmetrical and like perfectly laid out with all those perfect little petals. Other plants like bamboo, which we did an episode about. Japanese maple leaves, which I know we've at least mentioned before. Yeah. Oni. Demons. Yeah. A lot of characters from folklore and literature, or people from those ukiyo-e woodblock prints, of course, that we were talking about, like geisha and samurai would be common to see. Yeah. Mythological characters mm-hmm. that are humans from stories. Yeah. Or religious figures like Buddha or bodhisattvas or kami from Shinto. Yep. A lot of religious symbols worked in. Mm-hmm. One that I didn't know or I thought was really cool was Hanya, which are the masks that they wear in no theater. Yeah. So they do a lot of those because they can represent so many different things. So it's really wide ranging depending on which type of mask you get tattooed on you. Yeah. 
Those are pretty cool. I saw some of those those yeah. masks. Yeah, it can represent theater or the arts, but it can also represent evil, jealousy, anger. They mm -hmm. tend to be like negative emotions that is connected to it seems. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned mythical beast earlier. Another one, the phoenix, uh, is popular too, representing rebirth and fire. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Phoenix has always been one of my favorite mythological creatures. Yeah, they're pretty interesting. Big fire bird that uh, comes back to life when it dies. Mm -hmm. So all of these images, all, all everything we just talked about, all those can be incorporated into the same tattoo and be combined in different ways. And basically they end up as kind of separate elements of a, a sort of tapestry that's all held together with a background of waves or clouds. Like there's a very specific style, a texture behind these images that ties them all together. Yeah, or even like wind gusts. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing how they tie it all together. Like yeah. if you go and look at the full body tattoos, it looks like one picture and then you look closer and you can pick out like, okay, that's a big dragon on his chest. And then there's a koi over here on his arm. And you can pick out all the specific tattoos, but then the backgrounds just make them all come together like it's one picture, mm -hmm. which totally. is really cool. Yeah. And they're like pretty hard edges to this picture. Like I saw a lot of times a, a tattoo will end like around the forearm or somewhere around there. And it'll be either just a solid line, like it just, it's just a hundred percent tattoo. And then you get to a certain line and it all just stops. Or sometimes I saw the edges of it kind of a scalloped pattern, hmm. but it's like, it's not like there are all these images on blank skin. It's all this one piece of art that extends to a certain point on the body and then ends. Yeah. Traditionally it ended at the ankles and on the forearms so that you could not see the tattoos if you were wearing a kimono. Right. Yeah. These tattoos are pretty much always located on parts of the body that you can cover up with clothes and the tattoos can either cover all of the skin under your clothes pretty much, or they could be smaller, but you're not going to see like super, super small ones. The smallest ones I've seen in this traditional style at least cover like a shoulder and then down the arm where people wouldn't have been getting like a, a single little cherry blossom or anything like that. Yeah. Always think big on these traditional tattoos, right? Not something you're going to get on your wrist. Like, no, you need a big chunk of flesh. Right. So traditionally you got the bodysuit that Paul mentioned, which is called Munewari Soshinbori. And this thing covers everything but the head, the neck, the hands, the feet, and then a three-inch wide strip of skin, a vertical line down the middle of your torso. They leave that skin blank so that you won't see the tattoo even if they're wearing a kimono that like dips that low, you know, you're mm. showing that skin. Or an unbuttoned shirt. You can leave it a little unbuttoned and people won't immediately see your tattoo. Okay. I've never been an unbuttoned shirt guy, but. Yeah. So for people like me, there's the Donburi Soshinbori which is the full body tattoo without the opening on the chest, which I didn't really know about before. I kind of thought they all had the opening on the chest, but there seem to be quite a few people that do have the just everywhere as mm. well. Maybe one of the advantages of that is like you can get a huge chest piece then. If you've got the stripe on your chest, your big piece would be on your back. Like, you know, there'd be like a huge dragon head or some focal thing on your back right but you could do that on your chest too if you if you cover the whole thing yeah cool so generally everything that would be under your kimono is going to be covered but there are some areas that traditionally were left blank like under your armpit mm -hmm. because i don't know it's gross but also it's like super painful the tattoo under there and difficult to heal probably yeah i saw that it can actually be dangerous and more likely to be infected because that's where the sweat glands are. Yeah. And I saw another place that might be left blank would be the inner arms. And I saw one reason for that is because when criminals were tattooed, they would get their tattoos on their inner arms. So people might leave that area blank specifically to indicate that they chose their tattoos. They weren't forced to get a tattoo because they were a criminal. Yeah, I'm not covering up my criminal tattoo. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, also it seemed to vary like the closer you got to your privates, how far some people went. Yeah. There's, I mean, 
specific names for like getting your inner thigh tattooed and stuff. And some people yeah. seem to do it more than others. And I saw some pictures of guys that were just wearing like the smallest loincloth and literally everything you could see was tattooed. I saw some guys that were just wearing like a sock. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Like every, you could, everything was tatted. Wow. That you could see at least. Yeah. So let's talk about the colors. Just looking at the tattoos, white, black, green and red really stood out to me white yeah oh i didn't see a lot of white i don't think hmm. it's used more as like an accent like mm. there's not big pieces in white okay but i was looking closely um, i wonder if that's a more recent development i mean the original ink like the very first ink they had was only black right yeah 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 right it's that's all today like i don't know what kind of inks they had okay. when i think red and black were the first ones that they had the white represents purity, truth, and death. You know, white is the death color in Japan yeah. rather than black. Right. And black can mean mourning, but only if it's paired with white. So those two kind of sometimes are interwoven or play off of each other. Interesting. Black can also symbolize mystery. Mm -hmm. It's a mysterious color. Maybe sure. Because the darkness. Yeah. Blue is lucky. I actually saw that people often wear blue to interviews in Japan because it's considered a lucky color. I hadn't heard that. Trying to land that job. Green is another one that's become popular, representing life, youth, energy, and respect for the earth. Cool. That's a cool one. Mm -hmm. I really like like the green dragons that they do. There's some green dragons that look really cool. Yeah. I mean, dragons can be all sorts of colors, and I think each color for the dragon represents a different thing. But yeah. Yeah. There's yellow too. Joy, optimism, prosperity. Hmm. Maybe the color of gold. I'm not sure. Sure. Uh, pink these days represents femininity, but also spring and good health. Okay. And purple is a regal color. Even in Japan. Isn't that weird? Like huh. I always associated like purple was like a regal color back in like Roman days and stuff because it was really hard to get a purple dye. I so think it meant of, you were wealthy. I think of European kings like for movies they got the gold crown and they have that big giant purple cape. Yeah, yeah. I guess purple's hard to make everywhere. If it's expensive, royalty yes. has it. Yeah, yeah. So lots of bright colors, really colorful tattoos. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about how this whole process works. How do you get a traditional Japanese tattoo? I just walk into a shop wherever, bing, bang, boom, you're out in an hour, done, right? Wrong. <laughs> it's much more involved than that. So the first thing you have to do is find a tattoo artist or a horishi. And there are a lot more tattoo artists now than there used to be in Japan, but most of them don't use the traditional methods. So I have some numbers here. In 1990, there were an estimated only 200 tattoo artists in Japan. In 2014, estimated 3,000. 2017, estimated 5,000. So a lot more, like they very quickly ramped up, hmm. it seems like. But still, most of them are using machines. They're not using the traditional methods. So it's going to be a little difficult maybe to find somebody that will do the traditional method. Yeah, and maybe less so nowadays, but I saw that a lot of the tattoo parlors would be clustered around American military bases or tourist areas because so much of their clientele is foreigners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that a lot of Western-style tattoo artists are located around Tokyo specifically. I mean, a very touristy place. Most tourists end up in Tokyo. But most traditional Irezumi artists might be further out in the boonies a little bit. Yeah, you're not going to find them in the metropolises as often. Yeah. And I don't know how true this is these days, but a lot of them are, are or were apparently somewhat secretive. Yeah, you'd be word of mouth business. Right. Although I, it seems with the internet, it's getting a little easier to find good tattoo artists. Right. So let's say you've managed to actually find a tattoo artist, and they're all into the traditional methods you're going to go in for an initial consultation and you're going to talk about your tattoo and what you're interested in. But I thought this was a big contrast between these traditional tattoos in Japan and like modern tattoos in America or the West. You don't get a huge amount of control over the design. 
Like you don't go in there and just tell them exactly what you want and approve of, you know, all the, all the designs that they draw up for you. You give them an idea of what you want and then you kind of leave it up to them. Because the idea is that they are the master and it's an honor to be tattooed by them. And they know what design is best for you. They're just that masterful. Makes sense. I mean, I hate to judge, but we all see a lot of tattoos and go like, oh, that's (laughs) dumb. You know, like everyone's got their reasons for getting their own. But Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like these traditional tattoos, people imbued even more meaning into them maybe than people do these days. Like, I mean, I'm not saying everybody goes out and gets tattoos on a whim and doesn't really care. But these a lot traditional, of people do. yeah, I mean, some people <laughs> definitely do. But but these traditional tattoos are extremely personal, really meaningful images. And traditionally, that artist would even dig really deep into their client's life and learn about them as a person, and then choose these images and the symbolism to tell the story of their life on their skin. Yeah, and if you're doing like a whole sleeve or a full bodysuit, that's like a lot of ink. To get that all to come together, if you just let the person decide, I want a koi here and then a dragon wrapping around here, it might look awful or yeah. not like work, you know? Yeah. So you let the master kind of weave artwork around your body. You just give them a rough idea. Exactly. Although they do like some guidance. I saw some interviews with Japanese tattoo artists. One of these guys was really famous. He was like 73 years old. And he's like, you know, it helps to have a little bit of what they want because you've done 5,000 dragons in your life. How do you keep designing new, unique pieces without getting like a little bit about the person? Yeah. To feed into their personality. Cool. All right. So let's say, you know, you found your artist. You have a designer, they, they know at least what they're going to be doing. They're going to start with the outline, which is usually done in one sitting. And it kind of blew my mind that they often do this freehand. Like in the U.S., if you're getting a tattoo, they're going to put a stencil on you and they're going to trace that stencil. Like they're going to they're gonna show you the stencil in a mirror and say like, are you cool with this position? And then they start tattooing. But these masters are just so awesome. They can just do it without even any marks on your skin yet. They just do it by hand. Yeah. And when we say they do the whole outline by hand, it's not your whole body. They'll start with like a big koi on your arm or something on your chest. So it'll be like one picture, but they're not, they're not doing your whole body at once. They do pieces that all end up fitting together over time. Yeah. Yeah. But still, it could take several hours for them to get that out. Oh, yeah. They're done. big pieces. Like, it's, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, at this point, let's talk about how this tattooing actually works. Because in this traditional method, they are not using machines that you're going to see in most of the world these days. They're applying these tattoos by hand in a method called tebori. Te means hand. So, this is like hand, hand tattooing. And traditionally, let's say in the most traditional, like way back when, right? They would have a wooden or bamboo stick and then they would have metal needles that they attached to the end with silk thread. Mm-hmm. These days, it sounds like all metal sticks are more common, probably just for sanitation reasons. Yeah, definitely. And remember that word, irezumi, at the very beginning, we said it means inserting ink. And that's really what it looks like if you watch this happening. They're not drawing on the skin. Like if you see somebody with a machine, it looks like they're almost just holding a pencil and they're drawing the tattoo on the skin. Yeah. But these guys are actually pushing the ink into the skin manually, stroke by stroke. And it's really quick too. They're like, poke, 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 poke. Yeah. And honestly, I thought it looked pretty rough. They're not gentle, (laughs) you know? I saw a lot of sources saying they're very painful, people claiming they're worse than machine tattoos, but I also saw a couple people saying they're not as painful because you get little breaks between each poke rather than the machine. They're just kind of like constantly dragging it across your skin, so you get like almost no break at all. Yeah. The impression I got is that 
most people think the consensus is it's less painful. Yeah, less painful, but takes longer. Yeah. But if you watch it happen, it looks like it would be painful. It looked to me almost like they stick the needle in there and then they like lift the skin as they're pulling it out, kind of like maybe it gets more ink in there or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I kind of saw that. I wasn't sure if they were like lifting it or the skin was just kind of like sticking to the needles as they pulled it back Mm. out. Well, let me try to describe the technique that I saw. So this guy had this stick with needles on the end and, you know, modern, the, the modern sticks that they're using don't use the silk thread to time on there. It's all metal basically, but he's kind of resting that on his thumb and then he'll push it into the skin and then use his thumb as a fulcrum for like a lever and he'll push down on the handle, which kind of pulls the needles up while they're still in the skin and then he pulls it out. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if that came across at all. I didn't really see that. Well, from what I saw, like when they're pulling that thing out, it's pulling the skin up a lot. And it just, it it looked relatively rough to me. Yeah, tattoos are always going to be painful. Yeah. And there are huge differences between this method and the electric machine method. Because those machines have settings that control how deep the needle can go into the skin. But if you just have a needle on a stick or usually it's several needles on a stick, at least for the coloring part, I think. Yeah, definitely. They don't have any settings to change. It's all up to the artist. They have to know by feel how far they should go into the skin. Yeah, it's just lots of practice. Yeah, it's really amazing. I also saw that the colors for the hand method are supposed to be brighter, stronger, and longer lasting than with a machine. And you can create smoother gradations using only one ink. So the way I understood this is if you're using a machine, if you're fading like red into something else, you're going to be using multiple colors of ink to get that gradation. But with Tabori, they can just use the same ink, but just like space it out more to get that gradation because they have more control about how much ink actually goes into each part of the skin. Hmm. I mean, both my tattoos are over 10 years old now. And they're definitely fading, mm-hmm. especially the colors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think any tattoo will fade over time, but these ones maybe just last a bit longer than, than the machine ones without fading. Yeah. And I actually saw a video where this tattoo artist did like an A-B comparison. Like, okay, here's what this looks like if I use the machine. Here's what it looks like if I use the exact same ink and use the Tabori method. And you could see immediately it was way brighter. Hmm, with the Tabori method. It was really surprising. And he said that it's not because the ink is going deeper. It's because you get a higher density of ink. Okay. So I don't, I don't know exactly why it's a higher density. Maybe it's just because you're kind of opening up the skin more, letting more ink get in there or something. I don't know. But that's what he said. And I want to talk about the ink a little bit too. Traditionally, they use a special ink called Sumi ink or Nara ink. Call it Nara ink because it has been made in Nara for over 1,300 years. And traditionally, this ink was made from pine soot or soot from oil lamps. That explains why black was that first color they came up with. And it's the same kind of ink that's used in art and calligraphy. Like I'd heard of Sumi ink before for calligraphy, like painting scrolls and stuff. But these days, I wouldn't be surprised if more of them are using much more modern inks. I actually saw that after World War II, Japanese tattoo artists started trading their designs to the U.S. in exchange for ink, like more modern ink from the U.S. Interesting. Two specific people that they traded these designs to were Sailor Jerry and Don Ed Hardy. Recognize those names? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Two very famous tattoo artists who were very heavily influenced by Japanese styles of tattoos. Okay, so once the outline is complete, then they're going to start shading and coloring it in, right, Paul? Yeah. You come back about once a week or as much as you can afford and just get more and more filled in with color and shaded in until it's done. And then you move on to your next piece. Mm-hmm. I saw that once the tattoo is finished, the artist signs his name. Yeah, There's a special place that they reserve for it, usually somewhere on the back. Yep. And this whole process, I mean, if you're getting a huge bodysuit tattoo, it could take a very long time and get super expensive. 
Yeah, I saw like five years possibly of weekly sessions. Yeah. Totaling something like thirty thousand US dollars. Yeah. That's insane. If you want to go get tatted, I saw a number of around 140 an hour, possibly more, depending on how famous the artist is. Mm. Now, this is for the traditional style. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a little cheaper if you're going to like a modern tattoo type parlor in Tokyo or something. Yeah, yeah. So expensive. Yeah. But you get what you pay for. Yeah. And I mean, even if they're using a machine and not the traditional method, I saw that Japanese tattoo artists are known for being super high quality. So even then, you might get a better product and it's going to cost a little bit more probably than it would in other parts of the world. Yeah, so speaking of tattoo artists, let's talk about uh, Japanese tattoo artists. Yeah. We'll make it brief. This episode's running on because tattoos are so cool. We got a lot to talk about. It's getting a little long, but honestly, I think maybe that's okay now that we're putting out episodes every two weeks instead of every week. Yeah. Maybe it's okay. Let us know. If you think we're getting too long-winded, let us know. Or if you're happy with, you know, us digging into things a little bit deeper than we have in the past, let us know that too. So like so many other aspects of Japanese artistry, Tattoo artists will train for often many years under a master, Mm -hmm. sometimes living in the master's house. They're going to be cleaning the studio, observing the master, practicing on their own skin, making needles and tools and mixing inks, just doing all the things until they've got it down 120%, like like they always do in Japan. Right. This reminded me a lot of, uh, we talked about what it's like to become a sushi chef or a geisha yeah like you spend years just doing the grunt work before you're allowed to do anything important yeah but you learn and you really you learn it right yep and once you finally graduate to become a tattoo artist your master will usually give you a tattoo name the name is going to use the word hori in there somewhere which is to engrave There will usually be a syllable derived from the master's own name or a significant word. Mm -hmm. Or in some cases, you will take the master's name and become the second or the third or so on. Yeah, that master-apprentice relationship is really important. Especially maybe if you're training like your son or your daughter, they'll become the next you. Or I think a lot of times in those types of relationships, Sometimes the master will like adopt their apprentice and they kind of bring them into their family. And actually a lot of the, you know, you might've heard about a lot of Japanese businesses that have been passed down through families for like a thousand years. A lot of times the way they can say that is because it's not always a blood relative. You know, if if somebody doesn't have someone to pass their business onto, they'll adopt somebody and then they'll be like, you're my son now, you get the business. And it's, they can still say that it's being passed down through the family. Honestly, that's how you get a business to last a thousand years. Yeah. Like every family is going to have some generations where there's just nobody that's like inclined to run a business well. And the business would have failed or been sold or whatever. Yeah. But you find someone who will run it well and bring them into your family. Yep. I respect that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. That's all I got. Is that it? That's, That's the end of the episode? I think so. All right. Well, again, thank you, Melissa, for requesting this. This was a lot of fun. And if anyone else out there wants to request a topic for a future episode, reach out to us. You can find us on Instagram, SJP Podcast. You can send us an email, feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. That is also our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. We have a contact form on there. You can reach us. And, you know, I don't say it often enough, but If you can spare a little bit of time, give us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you found the podcast. That would be really helpful just to get the podcast out to more people that can, you know, hopefully learn and enjoy and use the information that we're putting out there. Absolutely. I think that's my whole spiel, right? Did I miss anything? No, I think that's it. All right. What are we talking about next time? It's our favorite time of the year, Jason. What's that? Halloween is coming up. Holy crap. 
Oh, Paul. And our next episode is our Halloween special. Oh, man. I've been looking forward to this since the last Halloween special. I know we had so many ideas what we could do for a Halloween special, and we could only do one a year. Yeah. We're going to be talking about Oni and Tengu. Yes. Two types of yokai, figures from Japanese mythology, kind of scary, mysterious guys. Demons, uh, if you say. Yeah. It's going to be fun. It's going to be super fun. Yeah, I can't wait to dive into that and learn all about Oni and Tengu. Me too. Well, thanks for listening. See you next time for the Halloween special.